First Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10. Let's go ahead and stand and honor the word. Let's read it together. Now, I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. For I have been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. Now, I mean this, that each one of you is saying, I am of Paul, or I of Apollos, or I of Cephas, or I of Christ. Has Christ been divided? Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one would say you were baptized in my name. Now, I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized any other. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that you would help us as we seek to understand rightly your word tonight. Lord, we ask that you would, uh, by your Holy Spirit, uh, illumine to us your truth and uh, how we as believers have a responsibility to apply it. And Lord, especially in uh, this passage of Scripture, we ask that you would guard our fellowship. And Lord, that there would not be divisions in our midst. But Lord, that uh, there would be harmony, that there would be unity, uh, that we would uh, not have a party spirit, uh, that there would not be cliques in the body. But Lord, that we would all together uh, be of one mind and one heart. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to understand Uh, the principles that you've given us in your word to accomplish that. So, Lord, once again, as we worship, our hearts are set on you. And, Lord, we we pray that you would uh, work in our hearts and minds. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In uh, her book, The Key to a Loving Heart, Karen Maines includes a parable about the church entitled, the Bowling Bride. And by the way, I don't recommend Karen Maines as an author, uh, but this was from a secondary source, and it's a good illustration, so I'll go ahead and use it tonight. But uh, it tells about the most climactic moment in a wedding ceremony. The families have been seated. The groom and his attendants are in their places. The minister is waiting, Bible in hand. The bridesmaids have now come down the aisle. The organ begins the bridal march, and everyone rises. But suddenly, everyone is stunned by the sight of the bride. She is limping. Her gown is torn and covered with mud. One eye is purple and swollen shut. Her hair is a mess. And in the parable, the groom is Christ. Doesn't he deserve better than that? The author asks. 
his bride, the church, has been fighting again. Tonight, I want to talk to you about the subject of divisions in the church. And I want you to know right at the beginning that I am very grateful that we don't have this problem here at Parker Bible Church. So I'm not preaching to anyone tonight. Uh, this is generally from the book of First Corinthians. But the message really tonight has nothing at all to do with our church fellowship in particular because our fellowship has been sweet for a long, long time. And thank, uh, we are all uh, thankful that that is the case. So it doesn't apply to any kind of division uh, that is in this body. But it has to do tonight the subject with division that could be in any church and the problems that division creates. It does seem that division and strife has become common in many churches today. And uh, I talk to a number of pastors, and uh, pastors tell me all the time about the problems that are going on in their churches, and I just, you know, secretly just, just think, just say, praise the Lord. We don't have that here. But uh, we could, knock on wood, right? Uh, as painful as it may be, uh, Satan seems to be having a heyday in many, many churches. And when we go through some kind of tough time, and sometimes people leave the church when you're going through those uh, times, the truth of the matter is that division is one of Satan's favorite weapons against the church. He's very effective at bringing it. And it really doesn't matter to him at all what the issue is that brings the division. He, he doesn't care about what issue it is. The, the goal that he desires is that he creates division of some kind. He just wants us at each other's throats. Anything at all he can use against us, he will. Now, division was also a big problem in the church at Corinth in the days of the New Testament. In fact, it was such a huge problem that Paul began with this issue. You know, you tend to start with the thing that is the most important, and Paul saw this as maybe one of the most important issues. So he begins with this issue, even though there are a lot of serious issues in this church that he had to choose from, including the problem of incest. But he didn't start there. He started with division in the church. Why do you think Paul started at this place with the issue of division? Well, I believe it's because he knew that this problem was the heart of all the rest of their problems. You see, it really all boils down to selfishness. And the source of all fighting in the church is ultimately selfishness. And one of the clearest teachings of Scripture, I believe, is that man is naturally sinful and naturally selfish, and the heart of man just tends toward that. You know, you, know, you can uh, see this even as you raise your children. You don't have to teach your children to be selfish, do you? I mean, they just, 
they come uh, about that just honestly. The very from the very first day, almost that they're able to old enough, they reach out and grab the toy from some other child and say, "Mine." Children are naturally selfish. Even believers can struggle with selfishness, even at times mature believers. And anytime selfishness has its way in the church, conflict is inevitable. When two or more people are bent on having their own way, they will soon be quarreling and arguing because their interests, concerns, and priorities will sooner or later lead to strife. There cannot possibly be harmony in the group, even a group of believers whose desires, goals, and purposes are generated by their egos and their selfish desires. By the way, the more mature a church is, the less they have to deal with division and strife in the church. Now, here's what the Scripture says about it. James chapter 4, verse 1 says this, What is the source of your quarrels and conflicts among you is not the source of uh, is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members that phrase uh, your pleasures that wage w- war in your members is a reference to the principle of the flesh which is still dominated by sin and it's that part of you where sin still has a beachhead in your life Verse 2 goes on to say, you lust and do not have, so you commit murder. And you are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. The source of conflict is when a person cannot get what he wants. He doesn't get his own way, so he fights back. And this causes strife and division in the church. You see, selfishness is ultimately the source of all quarreling. And it is something that Christ hates in his church. But what the Lord laments and opposes, Satan applauds and fosters. Listen, few things can demoralize, discourage, and weaken a church as much as bickering, backbiting, and fighting among its members. And few things so destructively undermine the testimony of the church before the watching world than for us to be fighting with one another. And Satan loves what goes on in many churches. He is thrilled to death when brothers and sisters cannot walk together in harmony. And fractured fellowships will do more to destroy the joy and effectiveness in the church than anything else. What a high price to pay for selfish egotism. Well, all that was just introduction, okay? We read 1 Corinthians 1, uh, 10 through 17 a few minutes ago, but let's go through it in a little more detail. Now, I want to focus primarily on verse 10 tonight. That's going to be our focus. Look at it with me again. 
Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree, and there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. Now what does Paul have in mind here when he speaks of agreement? Well, let's see if we can get a better handle on this. First of all, notice the word exhort. Notice that word there. Interestingly, it is the word parakaleo, and you probably recognize that. That, of course, is the word from which we get the, the, the Holy Spirit. That is a reference to the Holy Spirit. It means to come alongside someone in order to help them. And the Holy Spirit is often called the helper, uh, the comforter, the one who comes alongside. That's from the word parakaleo. And so Paul is saying here that he is coming alongside these Corinthians, not to hurt them, but to help them. And what Paul is telling them is that this is ultimately for their good. Now, in verse 1... Paul referred to himself as an apostle in order to establish his authority to speak to these controversial issues in the Corinthian church. But now he's appealing to them as a brother, and he calls them brethren. He said in verse 9 that they had been called into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ. And because they are one in fellowship with Christ... They should also be one in fellowship with each other as brothers and sisters in the Lord. In other words, unity in Jesus Christ is the basis of Paul's appeal. The phrase, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, means according to his character, word, and will. It's saying really the same thing as when we pray in Jesus' name. You know, when at the end of our prayers, when we say, in Jesus' name we pray, amen, that's, that's not just something we tack on the end of our prayer. It's not just some kind of special formula to help us get through to God. No, what it means is that we're praying in accordance with His character and will as revealed in His Word. So back to verse 10. How can we be in agreement? By behaving according to his character and by being obedient to his will that he's revealed to us in his word. That is the only way we're going to experience unity. And you know the phrase that you all agree, that seems impossible sometimes, doesn't it? I mean, you know, how can we all agree on everything all the time. But really, it is all based on the Lordship of Christ. It is all based on our willingness to let go of our sinful, selfish demands and to come together in unity under His Lordship. We can accomplish this unity through the Spirit-filled life. You see, God never gives us a command based on mere human ability. 
It is always according to the power that works within us. It is always according to the power of the Holy Spirit. You see, in our own strength, by our own efforts, we can never be in agreement, but by His grace and power, we can be. And no matter how impossible this may seem, the Bible commands us to be in agreement about the things of God. This is an imperative. This is a command. It's not just something that would be nice if we walked in agreement. It's something we are commanded to do by our Lord and Master. Now, the phrase that you all agree literally means that you all speak the same thing. In the church, we're all supposed to be speaking the same thing. You know, I don't think there is anything more confusing to a new Christian or to an unbeliever who is considering becoming a Christian than to hear supposedly mature believers giving conflicting views on what the Bible teaches. And I really believe that few things are more devastating to a local church than to have everyone giving his or her own ideas and interpretations about the faith. Or of the congregation being divided into various factions, each with its own views. And so you have, you know, this theological camp over here, and then you have this one over here, and they're all teaching different things. I'll tell you what, that's not healthy for a church. That is exactly what was happening in Corinth. It was absolutely paralyzing them. Listen, for a local church to be spiritually healthy, harmonious, and effective for Christ, there must be, first and foremost, doctrinal unity. We all have to be speaking the same thing. We all have to hold to the same beliefs. The church should not be a smorgasbord of various doctrinal views from which members of the congregation can just pick and choose. That's never a good thing. Nor should there be various groups within the congregation that are teaching their own views with their own distinctive leaders. This is the recipe for division. This is exactly what was happening in the church at Corinth. And listen, there are all kinds of views out there on all kinds of issues. Um, By the way, all you have to do is just kind of listen to Christian... If you you just listen to Christian radio all day long, you'll know what I'm talking about. You'll hear, hear every kind of view that you can imagine on that. There are all kinds of views out there. There's very little doctrinal agreement... And there's very little doctrinal discernment in the church today. And that's why people are buying into all these strange ideas and all this heretical stuff and things like Jesus Calling or the Health and Wealth Prosperity Gospel and and all these trends that are coming down the pike. Now, that's a whole different subject, and we'll go down that road tonight. But it would seem to me that 
there is a lot of junk out there today in the name of Christianity. And no matter what it is, as long as it is new and creative, people will buy into it. And you can find it at the bookstore. And you can hear it on the radio. Uh, And people always want something novel. And they want shortcuts. And they want something that will uh, give them some kind of secret uh, to success and prosperity. And so you just you give them something that is quick and easy and positive and promises some great blessing, and contemporary Christians will flock to it. But back on the subject at hand, you can turn to just about any Christian radio station, and you'll hear everything from universalism to salvation by works to Christian mysticism. You, you hear it all. It just runs the gamut. And I don't want to get on, off on that rabbit trail tonight, but as far as God is concerned, there cannot be two conflicting views that are both correct. They can't both be right. Either one is right and one is wrong, or it's possible they're both wrong, but they can't both be right. And obviously, we can never be fully dogmatic in our understanding of Scripture because we are fallible interpreters of the infallible Word. And we need to be especially careful on those issues that are not clearly spelled out in Scripture. We have to be careful when we can be dogmatic and when we should not be. But listen, God is not at all confused or self-contradictory. He does not disagree with himself, and his word does not disagree with itself. And a key verse here, I believe, is Deuteronomy 29, 29. So turn with me to that uh, passage, Deuteronomy 29, 29. This is a key verse. You ought to know this verse. Here's what it says. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever that we may observe all the words of this law. The things that God has revealed to us in his word are intended by him to be understood by us. They're clear. He has given his word and we can understand it. Now, we may not always get it 100% correct, but we must work hard at getting it right. And it is important for us to be in agreement with each other as to what it says. We have to have doctrinal agreement. That's why we're to be diligent to present ourselves approved to God as workmen who do not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. 2 Timothy 2.15. We've got to work at getting God's word right. But we must be together on doctrine. And we must be in agreement on what God says. Now, we may misunderstand at times. We may misinterpret the truth from time to time. 
But we must work diligently to arrive at the truth. And we must be in agreement as to what the truth of God is. Paul says that there may be no divisions among you. The word for divisions literally means to rip apart. This is a graphic word. Having divisions in a church is like having a wild bear come into the congregation and rip it apart. This is similar to what Paul was talking about in Romans sixteen seventeen. There he said, Now I urge you, brethren, keep an eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you learned, and turn away from them. Keep an eye on those people if they're going to teach that which is not according to Scripture and bring about dissensions. Turn away from these false teachers. Now, Paul specifically has in mind differences in doctrine. The most serious divisions that a church can ever have involve doctrine. Now, in matters where the Scripture is silent or not explicit, there is always room for difference of opinion. On matters of preference or style, there is room for a wide variety of options. One is not necessarily better than the other. And here, with preferences, there must be patience and understanding and cooperation. And we must always treat each other with uh, respect and uh, genuine love. But when it comes to the clear teaching of Scripture, there's no room for difference of opinion. Because to disagree with the clear teaching of Scripture is to disagree with God. And on these things, there must be agreement. We must agree that God's Word is the standard for everything. You say, well, what about those things such as methods or procedures or other things about which the Bible does not speak? Guess what? God has a plan for that. God's plan is that there must be agreement in the decision-making process of the local church leadership, and their decisions should be accepted and supported by the other members of the church, especially by those who are teachers or who are in positions of responsibility or influence. Now, I don't know if you like God's plan or not, but this is critical for the maintaining of unity in the body of Christ. God's plan is to use godly leaders, elders, to direct the congregation in these things. And... uh, But bottom line is we can't have teachers in the church that are not together doctrinally and philosophically with the church leadership. We cannot allow that to happen. That's not to say that uh, there cannot be some kind of minor differences on non-essential matters. But anything that will cause confusion or division cannot be tolerated. We cannot have teachers teaching different things. It will cause confusion. It will cause factions and divisions. And what will happen is members will tend to line up 
with the teachers with whom they agree, and soon it will become just like it was at the church of Corinth. And one person will say, well, I'm of Paul. And another will say, no, I'm of Apollos. And someone will say, I'm of Cephas. And then somebody else will come along and say, no, I'm just of Christ. One author wrote, obviously, the key to unity in doctrine and decisions is having godly leaders who are united themselves in the will of the Spirit. Men who are not close to the Lord and well taught in His Word cannot possibly recognize or agree on sound doctrine or make sound decisions. It says, without knowing God's Word, they cannot perceive error, even when they want to. The only sure way to identify a counterfeit bill is to compare it with one known to be genuine. Only Scripture-taught, Spirit-led men are able to guide a church into the unity of truth and protect it from error. If a church does not have that kind of men, no form of leadership will work spiritually. Folks, I'm grateful that we have men like that. And as we appoint elders in the future, and as we appoint teachers in the future, especially teachers of adults, students, we need to make sure they are men like that. And you know, one of the greatest blessings that a church can ever have is to have leaders that are walking in agreement. The reverse of that is also true. One of the worst things that can ever happen in a church is to have leaders that are not walking in agreement. And you know what? You can usually tell very quickly whether that's happening in a church. It doesn't take very long. You walk into a church, you visit a church uh, just a couple of times, uh, you usually can tell if there's division, strife, factions. You can just sense that in a church. It's usually very obvious. And I want you to know I am very grateful that we have elders that are walking together in agreement. And um, that doesn't mean we always initially agree on everything. But it does mean that after we've had time to pray about something and to search the Scripture, we are able to come to agreement on it. And that's important. That's the way it is now. That's the way I pray it will remain for the sake of the body of Christ here at Parker Bible Church. We have a responsibility to walk in agreement. And let me just push this one step further. Other leaders also have the responsibility to walk in agreement with the elders of the church. Uh, you might not be an elder, but if you're in some kind of leadership, you have responsibility to get in step with the elders who are leading the congregation. And anytime there is disagreement, it is critical to get that worked out as quickly as possible so there's no division in the body. Can I take it one more step? I mean, I'm already on a roll. I might as well just keep going. Every church member has the same responsibility to walk in agreement with the elders and the other church leaders. We all have that responsibility. 
And if something is not right, you need to make it right. And if there's disagreement on something, then you need to meet with the elders and work it out. Unity of the body is that important. It is critical. Well, let's move on in our text. That phrase, made complete, speaks of mending such things as nets, broken bones, dislocated joints, broken utensils, torn garments. Christians are to be made complete, or as the King James has it, perfectly joined together, both internally in the same mind and externally in the same judgment. The words mind, nous, and judgment, nome, refer not to affections and feelings, but to the working of the mind and its products. So Paul really is aiming at unity of ideas and thinking. This is content-oriented. This is cognitive here, that we're to think the same things. Now, another place where Paul expresses this same kind of thing is in Romans chapter 15. So turn with me to Romans 15 for just a moment. Romans 15, and look with me at verses 5 and 6. Romans 15, 5 and 6. Now, may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus, that with one accord you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that phrase, with one accord, doesn't mean that you ride together in the same Honda, okay? Here, Paul seems to be saying that we glorify him more when we are unified than when we are in conflict. In other words, division and strife and factions negatively impact our ability to glorify God. So it is important for us to be in agreement. Now, does this mean that we are carbon carbon copies of one another? You know, we're all just little copies of one another walking around. No, that's not what it means. Of course, that's not what it means. God has made us unique as individuals. We have different temperaments. We have different personalities. We have different gifts, different abilities. We all come from different backgrounds. We have different ways of looking at things. So we're not going to be carbon copies of one another And we really should not try to be. That's not what Paul is getting at. He's not talking about that here. What Paul is saying is that we are to be of the same opinion in regard to Christian doctrine, standards, and basic Christian lifestyle. That's what he's talking about. I mean, think about it. The apostles themselves were all very different from one another. They were all of one mind in regard to doctrine and church policy, but they were all very different. And there were differences of understanding at times. There there were differences of interpretation of Scripture. The first order of business then was to reconcile those differences according to Scripture in a Christ-like way. 
And we see examples of that in Scripture. Ego has no place in decision-making. Only the will of God does. Now, a, a great example of that can be found in Acts chapter 15 with the Jerusalem Council. And if you study that account, you will find that it was not an arbitrary ruling made by a group of influential and persuasive men. It was a decision made by godly apostles and elders in accordance with God's revealed will and under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Those leaders were able to say in verse 28, or it seems good to the Holy Spirit and to us. We're all in agreement on this. And folks, this is why it's so important for us to have godly leaders in the church. Godly leaders will seek the Spirit-inspired truth and divine plan for His church. Now, understand something, though. This was a unique period in the history of the church in Acts chapter 15. This was in that transitional time between the Old Testament and the New Testament, the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. Not everything in that time period is normative for us as believers today, so we understand that. But still, this shows us that when a congregation becomes convinced that its leaders are seeking to do the will of God as revealed in His Word and illumined by His Holy Spirit, then they always should be ready and willing to follow their leadership. You say, well, what if an issue arises in which we do not agree with the leadership of the church? What should we do then? Well, it's fairly simple. You're to make a loving appeal. Make a loving appeal. If an issue arises that you believe needs attention, then you should carefully and lovingly present your views to those in leadership without pride and contention, and then you must leave it in the hands of those to whom God has given the responsibility to lead his people. You say, well, who are the elders accountable to? They're accountable to God. They're accountable to God. They're they're the ones that are going to give an answer to God. And remember, the elders are the ones, biblically, who are going to stand before God and answer for what happens in the church. They have a heavy responsibility and a heavy accountability. But the way the members of Christ's body are to preserve unity is by not insisting on their own personal agenda. By avoiding the causing of dissension through criticism and slander. And by putting the will of God and the welfare of God's people ahead of everything else. That's how we're to preserve the unity of the body. Paul put it this way in 2 Corinthians 13:11, "Finally, brethren, rejoice, be made complete, be comforted, be like-minded, live in peace, and the God of love and peace shall be with you." 
if we are fully committed to living in peace with one another, then God promises that His peace will be upon us. And we will have the rich blessing of His uh, amazing peace as we follow these instructions. Now, Paul put it another way in Ephesians chapter 4. So turn with me to Ephesians 4 for just a moment. Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 6. Paul said, I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, entreat you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. Notice, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing forbearance to one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. And then verse 13, until we attain to the unity of the faith, and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. We're to work to maintain the unity in the local assembly of believers. Notice here that unity is grounded in the doctrinal agreement of what views we have of God and the unified knowledge of the Son of God as the goal. Notice this is also be done with humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love. But whatever we do, anytime there's any kind of a disagreement or any any uh, issues that need to be worked out, we always must do that in a spirit of love. And not only must we have doctrinal agreement, we also must have the right heart toward one another. If we're walking in the Spirit, we're going to be exhibiting the fruit of the Spirit. And we're going to be treating each other in the right way. And as we do that, unity will result. Well, Paul put it this way in Philippians chapter 1. He said, Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. And then he says, Make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit and intent on one purpose. Paul said, if you really want to make me joyful, then walk together in unity. Have the same heart. Be like-hearted. Have genuine love for one another. And be focused on one singular purpose in the Lord. This is what we must strive for. This is the kind of congregation that pleases the Lord This is the kind of congregation that's going to make an impact on the world. Let's be that congregation for the glory of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word again.
the clear instruction of your word. That you desire for the church to be free of divisions, strife, bickering, slander, things that that cause fighting, backbiting, disagreement. Lord, uh, we know that Satan loves to create that kind of stuff. And he knows that he can destroy our witness and he can destroy our effectiveness and even the ministry of the church if we succumb to that. So, Lord, we pray that you would help us by your power, by your grace. You would help us to be people that are walking together in unity and that we could preserve the bonds of unity and that we might be walking with your peace, having peace with one another and peace with you. And Lord, we pray these things that you would, we thank you that, that we experience that here in this church. We pray that would continue and even increase. Help us to be this kind of church that is fully pleasing to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.